I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Greetings folks, once again, Matt Dixon here, and this is episode two of the Purple Patch Podcast. Goodness me, I am glad you are here, and today... I'm going to issue a personal challenge. In fact, I'm going to demand that you shift your lens on the approach to training. We're going to explore the key elements of performance and training today, and we're actually going to tell you a story. I want to weave a case study to try and highlight a conversion story from underperformance to excellence. It's a classic case of an athlete that we tend to see that's highly motivated, that's trying to work hard, but just not getting that yield. And hopefully we can draw some lessons to it. Out of that case study, we're going to present a path of solution to you so that hopefully you can accelerate in both sport and life. Today, it's all about performance in a starved life. But before we dive into the meat and potatoes, let's do Word of the Week. We like the way he thinks, serious with a wink. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. Fueling. That's the word of the week. I always get asked, what are the mistakes that athletes make? And I always come up with the two king mistakes. The first, too hard in the easy days. That dilutes the key sessions of the week. It increases your risk of injury and fatigue. And it actually limits your performance yield relative to the hard work that you put in. So that would be number one. But number two, what we're going to talk about today is not fueling following workouts. So let's explore that. And I use that word carefully, fueling. Let me first explain. If we think about the calories that you put in your body, if you've got an athletic mindset, there is your nutrition, and that's your backbone to healthy eating, breakfast, lunch, dinners, and snacks. That is your platform of health. That's where you get your source of nutrients, your vitamins, as Americans would say, and minerals. So it's all part of being a healthy human being. But you're fueling on the other side. That is the calories that you consume during, but most importantly, following workouts. With an athletic mindset, these are your performance calories. So we want to focus on the critical habit of post-workout fueling. And that means consuming calories 30 to 45 minutes following a workout. Typically, it means real food. And folks, it means every single workout. That's really important. To highlight it, I want to outline what happens if you fail to do this. So if you fail to consume calories on a consistent basis following your training or your workouts, it can have a really disruptive effect on your energy balance in the day. It increases your global stress on the system with elevated circulating stress hormones flying around the system post-workout. It diminishes your adaptations to training and it makes it really hard to eat well. You actually go into a state that I like to call athletic starvation. Help, help, I'm burning calories and I'm not replenishing. And what happens is your body sends out subsequent cravings in which you tend to overeat and you have heavy, heavy cravings for those less preferable foods. And yes, that's chocolate, ice cream, cookies, pizza, 
pasta. Finally, there's just a lower global performance yield. That's the second time that I've said that today. Relative to going too hard in the easy sessions, it has the same effect if you fail to fuel following your workouts. So that is why post-workout fueling is the very first habit that I tend to focus on with athletes. Are they doing their fueling right? We're looking for the yield of performance that comes to try and create a fabric of consistency in their training and make sure by integrating into life training, it's having a net positive effect on their energy balance, on their ability to make decisions throughout the day and not dragging them down. So how should you do it? Well, you need all three macronutrients. You can eat real food. It really seldom requires you consuming engineered food. To be honest, that's just a sales pitch most of the time. You should consume some carbohydrates to restore those energy packets, or glycogen as it might be called. You need some protein. That will naturally suppress your stress hormone and kickstart the recovery process. Critical in sport, but also You don't want to carry those stress hormones into the workday. And then finally, you need some fat. So it is real food. And this isn't just about sports performance. This is a catalyst to help you balance energy in the day and equip yourself with the opportunity to make optimal eating choices throughout the rest of your day. And that is why the word of the week is fueling. Now, let's crack on with the main event. All right, so the main event today, performance in a time-starved life, the fundamentals around training. Before we dive into the details, I think it's really valuable to actually talk about the current state of the world of performance at large. And there are lots of positives in what's happening in this sort of lovely word performance. I think there are more and more people engaged in an athletic lifestyle globally. And obviously that's not for a lack of options. We have running, including marathons. We have triathlons, CrossFit, Spartan races. The list goes on and on. And coupled with this, I think that it's out of the fact that science is increasingly showing us the benefits of exercise in an athletic mindset, but equally the really corrosive effects of being sedentary. You don't have to look very far to see things like sitting is the new smoking, for example. We also have technology, the explosion of wearables, and those wearables are providing coaches, athletes, and enthusiasts with all sorts of information and tracking of data. And hopefully, if utilized correctly, they can actually provide some real insight into performance progression. And yet, I think that there is a broad symptom of underperformance in sport and life. And this is especially true. It's magnified amongst time-starved athletes. It's a real challenge. But not to be a Debbie Downer, there is good news. I think our conversation is really timely because there is this cultural shift that is occurring with how society views performance at large. It's really started to progress from these isolated areas where people just consider performance in health, family, work, sport and other factors to this more global and holistic view of the optimized person not to utilize too much of a trendy phrase well this transition is really critical for our success because if we want to achieve results in sport and life we have no option to actually deploy a more integrated mindset and approach 
So as we get cracking today, I want to start with a challenge. As we start this journey together and you begin your year of training, I'm not actually going to talk about asking for a change in what needs to happen fundamentally. You still need to train. Your journey still requires massive commitments and there are no shortcuts. So I'm not here to give you a magic pill. As you might say, there is no magic pill, laddie. The challenge is for you to shift your lens and the way that you look at the path to performance. So I want you to take a really courageous leap in the mindset of what it actually takes to be successful for you without diluting the undeniable need of commitment to work. You reap what you sow, that's a reality, and that will never change. What I'm going to ask you to do is repave your path to your own brand of excellence. I'm probably going to challenge some of your long-held beliefs around performance and excellence and what it takes to be successful. I may make you uncomfortable as you start to transition where you should put your focus. And in fact, you might even start to realize some of the areas that you might have been doing things wrong. And that's okay because we want to improve. But ultimately, I want to help create a framework for you to have ongoing success. So the first step of this is to actually talk about the magic performance words. What are the always present words on a really successful recipe for an athlete? Well, the first is specificity. Your training has to be specific to you, your goals and your events, your availability, and of course your readiness to absorb that training and positively adapt. Layered on top of that, the second word that we would talk about is consistency. You want to find a recipe that you can repeat and repeat without making the sport a monkey on your back. And so that really resonates with the way of thinking of some training done effectively is much better than just a little bit too much training that ends up becoming a drag on the system. We also have to have, the third word, progression over the weeks over the months, and even, yes, over the years. What you're doing this year wants to lead into the year following. And the final word, the word that many people don't like to hear, patience. Don't expect linear progression on your journey, and just because you don't always see the results, or at least the immediate results of the hard work that you're putting in, it doesn't mean there isn't value there. So the four magic words when we think about performance is specificity, consistently applied, with progression, and you the athlete having a whole bunch of patience. Well, how do we bring that to life? I want to tell you a story. And this is actually a real-life purple patch athlete. I almost used his last name. I asked him and I said, hey, is it okay if I tell you a story? This is the story of John. This is real-world stuff. But I chose this as it's such a classic story of an athlete that we take that is highly motivated, that is looking to succeed, that is putting their heart and soul into their own journey, but not actually yielding. And just with a little bit of a shift in lens, and it takes courage, and an adaptation of approach, the fruitful yield of great performance came out of it. So let's start with John's profile. Who is he as a person? Well, he was 42 at the start of the journey. He's a father of two, now actually a father of three, so a very busy man. His job, finance, 
travels two or three times monthly, crossing time zones, bi-coastal in the US, and I would say a very, very committed triathlete into Ironman 70.3 or the half Ironman distance, and he has completed an Ironman, and he's done well. Four years into the sport when he started, he sort of went through this journey of progression of finishing a first half Ironman, starting to be a little bit more competitive in half Ironman, taking a bite of the big apple and going into Ironman. And now it has become the life ambition. I want to go for the Holy Grail. I want to qualify to Hawaii. Super. But after those initial years of success, he had had three years of failure and plateau and he hadn't qualified. So we start the story and John came to me. And on the surface, when you look at him, it's actually a really impressive, high-performing individual. He's successful in business. He's got a lovely family, which he's committed to. And he's an Ironman athlete. But wow, when you actually scratch under the surface, the picture wasn't as pretty at all. So he hadn't hit his goals. And what came out of it is he really struggled with big energy swings at work. It was a constant negotiation with wife and family for training. And yes, I think the point is important. He loves them and he wanted to be a great husband and a great father. And yet there was this tug between family and training. And underneath all of this, he's not actually improving or involving in his sports performance, despite the fact that he's putting more and more timing into it, more and more energy, loads of coaching and very expensive equipment buys. So he's committed to all, but ultimately not thriving at anything. And it really comes out that the bucket of stress is just too high. So I think it's worth us diagnosing where was he going wrong and how was the intervention applied so that we can actually create a catalyst for success. Well, the first thing that was very, very clear in John's case is he had an unsustainable training program. From his readings and what his friends told him and, of course, the culture of the sport, John had this really firmly held belief that he needed to accumulate 20 hours a week of training in order to be successful. That was his barometer. So, of course, to plan that, he had most frequently twice-a-day training and a lot of the weekends were eaten up with long hours to really get the necessary volume in to be ready for half Ironman and Ironman performance. Out of that approach, how am I going to cram 20 hours a week into very busy finance life with a family that also involves travel? Inevitable compromises came out of it. Sleep was the first victim, and that's always the first victim in these types of scenarios. And it's that time where people always say, yes, I can survive on five hours a night of sleep. Yeah, you can. And I'm not worried about survival, but can you thrive on that? And so John was consistently undervaluing sleep, both in terms of the quantity, what was the challenge, but because of the overstress, he also had really compromised quality of sleep. And that had a knock-on effect into his performance. Also, because he was so overscheduled, zipping from training straight to work, he had very little time for proper fueling. Of course, the other thing that occurred is you go and do that morning training. You get up early, you go straight to work, and you don't have time to fuel properly. So he found himself starving in the rest of the day, and that led to the huge cravings. It led him reaching for the cup of coffee in the afternoon, a cascading effect, of course, to disrupting sleep again at night. And it made it really, really hard for him 
to leave the complimentary M&Ms that they had in the office alone. He just found himself reaching towards it. So it was this fabric of issues that were all interconnected that really ended up having a knock-on effect to, on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis, the actual quality of training, the actual quality of recovery and sleep where you're hopefully yielding adaptations, and of course his ability to maintain concentration throughout the workday. Do you really think that John was coming home then and bringing the best version of himself to his family? Of course not. He was exhausted. Family time, that's the other compromise. Competing demands, especially at the weekend. If you think about every single Saturday and Sunday, immediately cut in half because of necessary training time. You're gone all week, and then all Saturday morning, you're out training, accumulating the big bike rides every single week. You can see how there's natural tension there between family and his desire to be a great father and a husband but also with the actual family themselves that start to feel isolated. And this makes the sport itself the real negative tension within the family environment. So in many ways, John was existing, but not thriving. There were too many stressors in his big training trying to actually adopt while leading a big life. And it was really rooted in him setting the barometer of success in the wrong place. The simple accumulation of training hours as the litmus of success. All of his workouts were valued the same. There was no hierarchy around specificity. And he had absolutely no tools to adapt the training program. It was almost like this wonderfully rigid, highly designed spreadsheet that he tried to apply to the dynamic dirtiness of life. So this problem really magnified when you started to incorporate travel. That was then he went, fell into the natural, oh my goodness me, I have to catch up. I'm going across time zone shifts, disrupting sleep even more. And of course the quality of training was absolutely wrecked. So you can imagine his mood, you can imagine the performance of the training and you can imagine the knock-on effect that occurred when he returned and he tried to play catch-up with all of that training. The big result that came out of this concoction of poor recipe and planning and execution was that he was a victim of really frequent sickness. And I would say that that's a huge red flag to an overstressed system. And especially when you think about how long it would take him to get back to health. The body will typically regress to the mean. It's normal to get sickness. It's normal to get cold. It's not normal to really fall into a cycle of repeated sickness. And each one of those sicknesses takes two, three, four, five more days than the average person to return to health. That is a disruption of your system and it's also a great cause of an erosion of confidence with the fact that you're missing that plan and especially in John's case where his barometer of success was all about just checking the box of the plan. So what was happening with him is he was working hard, trying to cram everything in, it wasn't sustainable and then he was arriving at races, what we call fit and fatigued. The antithesis of what we want. We want you to arrive, yes, fit, but fresh. And that's why we have the saying, fit and fresh. So 
the sentiment for him going into races. And when I first talked to John as we started the performance journey together, I said, how did you feel when you actually arrived at the race? And his primary sentiment was, get this over with. So at least I can have a little bit of recovery. I need a break. I can get back to the other things in life. So that is the monkey on the back. And that's born out of a desire to need a bake to the never-ending stress, almost like a prison sentence. Interestingly as well, every single race that he had, especially in Ironman distance, he experienced GI distress. And he assumed that he really needed to do a deep dive into his fueling approach. But the much more likely culprit of that was the systemic overstress that he carried going into the actual event itself. And then, of course, finally, he was unable to lift his performance on the day of the actual race. So he always underperformed relative to the hard work putting in. And typically, especially in those longer distance races, the Ironman races, where he's trying to qualify to his dream of the Hawaii Ironman, he experienced mechanical and systemic collapse towards the end of races and had a bad experience. With each failure came understandable frustration And what's the natural reaction for this highly motivated, committed athlete? I need to do more. But the truth was for John, fitness was not the limiter. For the committed athlete, fitness is seldom the limiter. The headline news of this is that within the context of his life stresses, when training stress was too high and not supported by critical potential supporters, sleep and good fueling that facilitate positive adaptations. And so an intervention was clearly needed, and that included a completely radical rethinking to the path of success. So John was issued the challenge. So what did we do? That's the big question. Well, we saw the classic mistakes. He had very isolated thinking. And I would say that coaches often carry the burden here also. Just thinking about the sport and the training stress of the sport and not considering the bigger factors of life. Any approach or training plan for the time-staffed athlete that exists without deep and ongoing consideration of life factors is going to struggle to work. The second part is obvious that came out of that story is that the training plans were not sustainable for John. He had too much load relative to his life and therefore he had these cycles of sickness, cycles of fatigue and of course confidence eroding partial completion of the plan. And pretty much he was ignoring the role of the supporting class. He wasn't doing any strength work. Recovery was an afterthought, particularly sleep as we talked about it. And then, of course, the nutrition and the fueling just really wasn't present. And that came down to less a desire to eat well and more a timing component of things. So he might have been faff. Do you know what faff means? I'm not sure if you know what faff means, but it's another purple patch. And excuse my French, fit as fuck. So he might have been faff, but he wasn't in a position to thrive. And that was because he was systemically tired and set up for failure. And guess what? He may not be qualifying for Kona, but he's also not excelling at work. And to be honest, he wasn't the best husband and father. He wanted to excel in all. He was deeply engaged in all elements, and he loved his work, and he loved his family. But his bucket of stress was overspilling. 
And that is a very, very common starting point that we have with athletes that come in. John is not alone. And John is not an idiot. He was highly motivated. He just didn't have the recipe right. So what are the lessons that we could give John? Well, the first is to establish the goal of training. The goal of training for me is to maximize training stress while achieving positive adaptations. So training is an essential stress, and it's required so that you can actually get the adaptations. But when you apply training, your body will adapt either positively or negatively. Positively, you're going to get fitter, stronger, more powerful. Negatively, you're going to fall into deep fatigue or you're going to have musculoskeletal breakdown and get an injury. The second lesson for John is that we must integrate that training stress into the big stresses of life. So if we think about everything that he has in life that is also contributing to hormonal stress, he has work, he has family and relationships, he has his travel, he has some semblance of financial stress, and it might be just financial planning as much as anything else in John's case. And then there's some element of self-stress, where we see ourselves in the world, how we actually view ourselves, and other emotional self-stresses that every human being has to manage. Well, in John's case, we also have to include two more, nutrition and sleep. These are obvious weaknesses for John, and they actually have just become another stressor onto the pile. And it's important for us to realize, as it was for John to realize, the body is incredibly smart. But at the same time, it's not that smart. And hormonally, it isn't able to really differentiate between training stress that's applied and the accumulation of all of the other stresses. How pesky for John and how pesky for us. So his mission is clear. But he, or even you, cannot build an approach to training in a vacuum. We must have an integrated approach. And so begins the radical rethink. What did we actually do with John to help shift his recipe? Well, the first thing is we really encourage him to start at the other end of the equation. You might remember me talking about his firmly held belief, I need 20 hours a week to excel. Well, instead of starting with, this is the training program, 20 hours a week in his case. How am I going to fit this into my life? And I am going to tuck and squeeze and push and make it happen. We actually begin at the other side of the equation. Let's begin with life. And let's talk about the non-negotiables. There's work, there's family, there's sleep, there's eating well. And then one thing that was missing a little bit, social. We want to have all of those elements. So let's build the landscape of our life and let's really firmly place those into the module of our life planning to start. And then the mission is to integrate the training program into that life. And that is a fundamental shift in mindset and approach. In this, it really pays to have a dynamic mindset and a plan of approach to each week of exercise and training. And it cannot be rigid. It cannot be set with weekly hours. If you have your barometer of success or failure, in John's case, as being the weekly hours of training, you're going to run into trouble. The other thing that we want to avoid is simply punching the clock, simply doing the hours of training 
where it doesn't really fit into the reality of life. So we are going to go down this path of trying to create some laser focus of specificity. The guide for John, as I mentioned earlier in the story, is that some training done effectively is much, much better than just a little too much training. So what we did with John is we started with that landscape with life, we built out all of the non-negotiables and then we went about creating a program that could fit into that life. And then within that program, the second thing that we did is created a very simple hierarchy of training sessions. We actually labeled each one of the sessions. Was it a key session? And that was a session that was going to provide the specificity of the week and the training that we want to get accomplished in any given block. Or was it what we call supporting sessions? And those supporting sessions, while valuable and are important, are there for more general endurance, maybe to facilitate recovery, maybe to prepare for some upcoming key session. But those are the sessions that, if necessary, if life forces us to do so, or I would say if fatigue forces us to do so, John is empowered to actually have a hierarchy. I must protect the integrity of my training week by really laser focusing on the key sessions. But those supporting sessions are the ones that, if needed, I can pull out some of the intensity, I can scale the duration, or, woe betide, I might actually make the decision to remove it from that week of training program. Now, this works. This hierarchy of training session works for really motivated people. And it works because most people are adults who are making the choice to do this journey. And so I always say, if you turn your back on teenage swimmers, they're going to hide under the bulkhead. But if you turn your back on a triathlete, they're going to add a thousand yards to the swim. And this is at the root of human nature. So we have to actually create a hierarchy to help John or you actually build a system of empowerment so that we can weave the recipe into the life. The third element that we did with John is we supported that training program with non-negotiable positive habits. So we first programmed sleep. We made time for it and I had John commit to it. And then we also, the first thing that we talked about, similar to the word of the week, is we absolutely focused on fueling. Every single workout as a part of the workout, your training session is not done, John, until you have fueled following the workout. And that had a huge cascading effect for him, both in terms of his consistency of training and the effectiveness of training, but also the energy and the balance that he could bring to the rest of his work day. The final element that we looked at was moderating his obsession and actually consider the other stakeholders in his journey. So what does that mean? Well, so many triathletes or committed endurance athletes have an on-off switch of training. I'm either on or I'm a sloth. What we did is we actually created a big 10,000 foot lens and said, let's actually look at your year as a whole and let's dial up obsession or dial back obsession relative to where your events are. So in some parts of the year, let's actually dial back where we're actually going to remove some of the weekend training. And yeah, you're going to train every weekend in likelihood, but we're going to dial it back and leave the lion's share of the weekend there for family. But then as you lead into races, the last couple of months going into a key race, we would identify key weekends 
where there can be family buying, it's scheduled, and John has the capacity to go and do that big confidence building training. So now we're actually getting the stakeholders, the family, involved in the planning. And we know that in May and in June, to get ready for John's July Ironman, there's going to be a couple of weekends where it's all about that mission because it's very, very important for him. And it's actually probably better for the family, for this highly motivated guy to thrive and do the training necessary. But in the other weekends, you get to peel back, you get to be a bit more of a family man, and you do some more time efficient training that is scheduled in there. And that creates buying and that creates a little bit of control and focus for John and the rest of the family. Oh, and one more thing. We finally focused on self-improvement rather than simply getting ready for the race. So my big mission for John is don't chase qualification. Don't chase races. Instead, I want you to pursue simply becoming a better athlete globally. And I think if we can do that, and then your racing will be better. Well, that was the message of the time. And you're probably not surprised to hear that was the result that we got. So let's talk about the results. Well, the first thing I should say is it took a heck of a lot of courage for John to adopt this. And it took actually a pretty firm hand and me actually drawing the landscape of, hey, you remember that definition of insanity? Yeah, doing the same thing over and over again. We have to change something. Take the risk. And it's no doubt that it feels to an athlete like John that's committed to the 20 hour a week schedule, it feels like a step back to start. And so it really demands an investment, a little bit of courage and a shift in lens. He went from 20 hours a week of training, many of which he would admit were low value and sort of survival training, but he actually transitioned to a weekly recipe of a baseline of about 14 hours a week. And then we ramped up the training hours when life ebbed a little bit and he had capacity and we dialed back training when life forced it. The result of that is that he really started to establish some control in his training. He managed to achieve greater consistency and he really had that identification of these are the key sessions and physiologically, emotionally, he could lift for those key sessions. And guess what? Behind it all, he actually started to enjoy the process again. He was sort of thriving and looking forward to those juicy sessions that he could do. And there's absolutely no doubt that passion and enjoyment is directly related to fatigue. So I knew that by him starting to really enjoy the process again, we were getting somewhere. The second result was that by actually replacing those reduced training hours with rest, family, and more sleep, there was actually less impact on work from that heavy training schedule that he was doing. So his energy improved throughout the day. And again, that magnified his sense of control. He could actually critically think, make good decisions, and survive throughout the work day being better than if the training wasn't there in the first place. And that's a really critical component because ultimately, look, he was really involved and really passionate about his work, at least equally than he was about Ironman, which is a good thing in life. And I think that's because he was supporting it with really good habits. We should, I say at this place, we integrated strength and conditioning into this as well. And not just for the performance enhancement of the endurance component of training, but I wanted him to be a better functioning human being. We are designed 
to move heavy things. And with that and the fueling and the more time for sleeping, there was this catalyst of energy management and thriving globally. The key, the global results. So we know the knock-on effect is yes, he was enjoying training, and yes, he had more consistency in the workplace, but what were the actual results for the races? Well, for the first time in three years, he arrived at the races excited to race. He could lift his game, and he was void of any GI distress. And no, it wasn't a magic solution from an energy drink. He improved, he thrived, and he had a great race. And the byproduct of it all, coming from behind and whacking him on the back of the head, is he qualified. So he's heading to the Hawaii Ironman this year. He's qualified, he's excited, and he has a new performance journey ahead of him. Now, how can I go to the Hawaii Ironman World Championships and have a wonderful experience in that? But more important than that Hawaii qualification, and I think if we ask John, I think he would agree with this, more important is the integration of the sport is now a positive in his life performance. It's no longer something that he's shackled on trying to integrate, but instead he's actually thriving at work, has the energy, he's a better participant in his family, and yes, his health. The reduction of hours didn't add to his waistline, it didn't add to the bags under his eyes. In fact, it was quite the reverse. So what can we learn from this story? Because I think it's really important to acknowledge at this point, you don't have to be an Ironman athlete to apply these lessons. In fact, you don't need to be a competing athlete at all. Everybody should adopt the mindset of an athlete in order to thrive in health, work, and life. And yes, of course, in your sport as well. But it must be integrated into your life. So that, to me, really begs the big question of the day. What is the program? When we think about adopting an, a path to performance, what is actually the fabric of the program that is necessary to take us there? Well, it really goes well beyond the endurance component. If we only think about the endurance component, it really promotes myopic thinking, and it's way too easy to lose perspective and compromise on some of the key supporting elements. So there's this shifting lens that really helps athletes and empowers them to maintain the big picture. And I would also say that it really helps in adherence to the execution of the program as intended. So for me, the program is this. Yes, endurance training and that has to be specific to you appropriate to you and integrated into life but as a part of the program there is recovery we're going to do a whole show on recovery but it cannot be an afterthought and it cannot be a sign of weakness a fabric of your approach and your program is that recovery component and then layered on top of that is we have the big bucket of nutrition. And this is more than just clean eating. This is fueling habits. This is backbone of proper eating and not being monk-like. This is talking quality, quantity, timing, and some elements, of course, of hydration. And then the final component is strength training. All athletes, pro all the way down to fitness enthusiasts, should incorporate some strength and conditioning. And that means that you can be functional to life. And I would also say that strength training is a performance gains accelerator of the hard work that you're doing endurance. And so, yeah, endurance training is your bullseye, 
but we want to broaden the lens on the program and see this integrated approach. Because what we know is that no matter the level of the athlete, no matter their hours that they have available, no matter what the sport they're looking for, within the context of their life, when they follow a smart and appropriate endurance training program, and it's supported with some strength and conditioning, with enough recovery, downtime, and sleep, and then there are really basic, simple habits around fueling and eating without becoming obsessive or some emotional calorie counter, they improve. And not only do they improve in the sport, but they actually improve in health, work, and life. So this takes real courage, it takes commitment, it takes patience, and it takes persistence. And it isn't overly sexy. And it's kind of the antithesis of hacking in many ways. But the good news is that it works. And so while so many people are pulled to shortcuts, so many obsess on that magic word specificity, but they try and get there through over-measurement of data, and others buy their way out of trouble with equipment, we obsess about nailing the basics. And that's a phrase that you're going to hear a lot over the coming weeks. Some very, very basic rules and frameworks to follow so that we can facilitate your success within the context of your life. And in fact, this goes all the way up to the top, nailing the basics. That's the mantra of our pro squad, believe it or not. But the good news is it extends and applies to all amateur athletes and, yes, even fitness enthusiasts. So this is really the root, as we talk about today, of why we don't chase training hours, why we try and avoid overcomplicating things that actually should be kept really simple, and we aim to retain a really fluid mindset in the relationship between training and actually what happens in daily life. So as we sit here to finish my conversation If I close my eyes and I listen carefully, I can hear the whispers right now. But that's not how Jan Frodeno trains. I hear stories of the epic mileage put in by, add the name of your favorite endurance sports star. And yes, that's true. The pros do go about it. They do train a lot. But I want to draw a line between the professional athletes and you the busy, time-starved amateur athlete. Within the context of that training mission, and when we think about stress, remember that what we discussed, our mission of training is to maximize training while achieving positive adaptations. And yes, that's the same for the pros, it's same for amateurs, it's same for fitness enthusiasts, but there is a radical shift in mindset and approach depending on which one of those you are. The pros are unapologetically going after world-class performance. So everything in their life is central around the performance habits. Training, sleep, nutrition, recovery, massage. And the rest of life, family, social, travel, has to wrap around that. That shouldn't be the way that you live your life. Because your quest should be to improve, to achieve your goals, but not at the expense of life. So the second part of your mission is that by integrating an athletic mindset, you should actually improve your health, optimize your work performance, and bring the best version of yourself to family and friends. And I would say that that sounds quite appealing, don't you? So we come back to the challenge. The challenge is to shift your lens at the way that you look at the path to performance. There is a better way, and I intend to take you on that journey and help you find the best path. 
So to close the episode, I think guys, that that information that I just delivered there and our little story about John, who is gonna become our iconic hero of performance I can feel over the coming weeks, is really fundamental. You might actually wanna revisit that and maybe look in the mirror and see whether some of it resonates to your own journey. It is the platform for the coming weeks of discussions. And let's talk about what we have coming up, dovetailing off of this. Well, the first is a discussion with Sami Inkinen. Sami is the CEO of Verda Health and the co-founder of Trulia.com. And he actually leveraged this approach on his quest to become amateur world champion in triathlon. And he also went under nine hours in the Hawaii Ironman. Yes, that's impressive, but I would say it's even more impressive when you realize that he accomplished that on a recipe of 12 hours a week of training or less. We're also gonna go world-class. So I'm off to Arizona for a Purple Patch professional training camp, and I'm gonna get those guys together, and we're gonna explore the mindset to elite performance when we think about those elements, recovery, fueling, training and mindset, and what can we learn from them? How do we actually apply their lessons at the world-class level to our situation? And then finally, we're gonna do a deep dive into each of those core topics, or what we would call the purple patch pillars of performance. We're gonna talk about endurance and mapping your training. We're gonna talk about recovery, nutrition, and strength. And there's gonna be an episode of education, but then we're gonna bring in a guest expert in field. And the first one of those is gonna be Dr. Chris Winter. He's the author of Sleep Solution, and he's a neurologist. He's the director of Charlottesville Neurology and Sleeps Medicine. And he tends to work with a whole bunch of the pro teams, major league teams, NHL or hockey teams, and of course, teams in the NBA. And what we're gonna do with Chris is explore that topic of sleep on sport and work performance. Hey, you know what? If Ariana can label you the sleep whisperer, you must be worth listening to, and you might even be interesting enough to come on this show. So we have lots of fun and interesting stuff upcoming. Stay tuned, but until then, stay smart. Don't be one of those athletes that I label strong like bull, smart like tractor. Nope. Until next time, take care. Cheers. To learn more about Purple Patch Custom Triathlon Programming, our upcoming training camps in San Francisco, Kona and South Carolina, or to learn more about Matt's latest book, Fast Track Triathlete, visit purplepatchfitness.com. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. We'd love it if you would subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks.